welcome to all. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you so much for coming to this event at the Oxford Martin School. In recent years, self-styled strongmen have risen to power in Moscow, Beijing, Delhi, Brasilia, Budapest, Ankara, Riyadh, and Washington. These leaders are nationalists and social conservatives with little to tolerance for minorities, dissent, or the interests of foreigners. At home, they encourage a cult of personality and claim to stand up for ordinary people against globalist elites. Abroad, they posture as the embodiments of their nations. And they are not just operating in authoritarian political systems, but have begun to emerge in the heartlands of liberal democracy. Your words, Gideon. How and why did this new style of strongman leadership arrive? How likely is it to lead to global war or economic collapse? Most pressingly, are liberal societies beset by internal turmoil and their own strongman dynamics capable of checking and reversing this trend? To discuss this important theme, I couldn't be more thrilled today than to welcome a wonderful panel of speakers. Let me start with Gideon Rackman, who is the chief foreign affairs columnist of the Financial Times and author of the excellent Age of the Strongman, a copy of which, here it is, um, which lends today's event its title and many of its key questions. Prior to joining the FT, Gideon worked for The Economist for 15 years. In 2016, he won the Oral Prize for Political Journalism. His other books include Zero Sum World and Easternizations, War and Peace in the Asian Century, around which Rana Mitter hosted a fascinating discussion uh, at the China Center in 2016. Um, next to Gideon, Margaret Macmillan is the former warden of St. Anthony's College, Oxford, and is an emeritus professor of history at the University of Toronto and the University of Oxford. Her acclaimed books include Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, The Uses and Abuses of History, The War That Ended Peace, and War, How Conflict Shaped Us. Uh, Margaret gave the CBC's Macy Lectures in 2015, the Reef Lectures of the BBC in 2018, and has received many honors, including most recently the Order of Merit. Finally, Lord Patton of Barnes is the Chancellor of the University of Oxford since 2003, and then Honorary Fellow of Balliol College. He was Governor of Hong Kong between 1992 and 1997, and European Commissioner for External Relations between 1992 and 1997. His publications include most recently the Hong Kong Diaries, which just came out a few months ago, Not Quite a Diplomat, Home Truths About World Affairs, and East and West. Uh, we are honored to have you. Just a few precisions about today's event. We will speak, the panel will discuss the, the subject for about 45 minutes before opening up to uh, the discussion uh, to our audience, both here and virtually. Uh, the talk is being recorded and will be live streamed and will be made available online after the fact. So please bear in mind that when you're asking a question, uh, also, more practically, there will be a drinks reception next door when we're done with the event. Gideon, let me start with you and the thesis of your book. When does the age of the strong man start, according to you? And more generally, are populism and authoritarianism related phenomena? Or are they two trends which happen to coincide at this historical moment? Well, um, to, to 
diff big, slightly difficult to answer questions. I mean, I think the, the start, almost too neatly, you could say it starts really at the beginning of the 21st century because Putin comes to power on December the 31st, January the 1st, uh, 2000. Uh, I think gives his first address as president on New Year's Eve. Um, and you, it takes a while for it to emerge what, what Putin is all about. Uh, in the beginning, he talks the rhetoric of democracy. Uh, I think Bill Clinton says more or less, this is the guy who's gonna cement Russia's democratic transition. Uh, but um, he becomes increasingly obviously authoritarian. Um, and then, um, you know, by, by 2007, uh, he gives a big speech in Munich, which is, is a big challenge to the West. He invades Georgia in 2008. But even in that period, I think he seems like an anomaly. Um, Merkel, I think, said around that time that he's a man of the 19th century who's struggling to survive in the 21st century. So I think it only becomes clear that this is a more global trend a bit later, uh, perhaps when Xi Jinping comes to power in 2012. And even then, we're quite, um, we in the West, uh, often don't recognize what's going on. I mean, I, I was one of the, I remember meeting Xi with a group of uh, people in 2013, and uh, including people like Gordon Brown and Kevin Rudd and so on. And the assumption in the group at that time was that this guy's a kind of liberal reformer, at least economically, and that maybe even politically, people were writing articles saying, you know, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll open up China, I think, uh, Nick Kristof, of the New York Times said something like, you know, maybe he'll remove Mao's body uh, from the mausoleum and so on. And, and none, of, you know, none of that kind of happens. Uh, and then 2014, you get Modi, and then 2016, Trump. And I think those two are very significant because at that point, it becomes clear that you can have this style of leadership actually in, in democracies as well, built around a cult of personality and a kind of authoritarian mindset. Um, as for populism and authoritarianism, I think that really applies more to the, the ones in democratic countries. Um, and I think they are related phenomenon because I think that um, the central claim of a lot of these leaders is that the country, the reason you need a strongman leader is that the country is facing some enormous crisis and that I'm the guy to fix it. Uh, so that Trump talks about American carnage and says in his 2016 speech, I alone can fix it. Um, and I think that a common theme for a lot of these leaders is that the, they have the strength and the vision to cut through all the, prob the problems of the country which are sort of imposed by a globalist elite and that you need me, a strongman figure, to do that. So I do think that populism and authoritarianism are quite closely connected. Mm -hmm. Margaret. Um, there's a sense that when, when, when faced this, I'm not criticizing the commentator's profession or indeed the academics, but very quickly when the age of the strongman in Gideon's terms set, set in, a lot of 1930s analogies became common. Um, my question to you is how, how far do you think these analogies, the history of fascism, the experience of interwar Europe, how, how far has it been abused in terms of its perils, or conversely, how useful is it to think through the last five or six years? I don't think history repeats itself neatly and precisely, and the circumstances are different. I mean, the 1920s in Italy when Mussolini did the march on Rome and made himself dictator were very different from the circumstances in many countries in the 21st century, and the same thing was true in 
Salazar's Portugal, the same thing was true in, in Franco's Spain, and of course in, in Hitler's Germany. But there are features, I think, which are common. Um, the claim that you speak for the people, and anyone who opposes you is not part of the people. I mean, that seems to me very much what's happening today. You know, if you, if you run, kind of, Trump does it. You know, you are not part of the people. You're, you're somehow outside the, the magic circle. And so I think there are features that are very much the same. And, and the notion of the leader is all wise and all powerful. Um, and the longing of people in difficult circumstances to have someone they can sort of give over responsibility to. Um, Eric Froome, years ago, the, the German psychoanalyst, wrote a book called The Authoritarian Personality. And he said there are people who want someone else to make the decisions for them. And if you're living through a time, as Italy was in 1922, in the aftermath of the First World War, which had been a very bad war for Italy and, and caused tremendous damage to Italian society and cost huge numbers of Italian lives, with strikes, violence, what looked like civil war developing in, in many parts, someone who said, I can sort it out. I think for a lot of Italians, it was just what they wanted. And I think the same thing has, has been true very much um, with Putin. I mean, Putin rose to power after the 1990s, which for Russia were appalling. And again, I think people almost with a sigh of relief said, well, if he can sort it out, let's not worry too much about the details of elections, free speech. And of course, in the 1930s, the impact of the Great Depression made a lot of people think the same sort of thing. I mean, even in, in deeply democratic countries, you know, in the United States, there were authoritarian figures like Father Coughlin, whom I'm ashamed to say was born in Canada. We, some of our exports aren't great. Um, but, you know, this was some, uh, Ted Cruz is another of ours. I, I apologize for, for this. Um, we shipped them to the US. But so I do think there are parallels, um, not exactly the same, but I think we, we need to be aware of what it is that made people turn to authoritarian leaders in the past and why they're doing it now. It's not unlike. Lord Patton, you've been very critical of the Chinese Communist Party's uh, crackdown in Hong Kong, but you've also commented quite vocally on the, uh, the populist drift of British, of British politics in recent years. I'm, I'm coming back to uh, the key thesis of, of Gideon's book, which is that populism and authoritarianism, populism in the West and authoritarianism um, elsewhere are deeply connected. Do you see... Um, do you see a connection between this recent vibrancy of authoritarian regimes and populist forces in the West? Well, first of all, let me um, excuse myself because I'm, as you pointed out, dealing with the informed commentator and with the great academic. And I'm just playing the usual Oxford role of plausible bullshitter. <laughs> um, and uh, do so straight away in responding to your um, question. Um, I think we lived in a period as successful as the period after the Congress of Vienna through most of my lifetime, partly because of extraordinarily good leadership in the 1940s and 50s, both domestic and international, and particularly from America. And I think in the, perhaps starting with the breakdown of the, of the Washington Consensus, we've had pretty bad leadership in our democracies, both domestically and internationally. Uh, in this country, we've created our own speciality of, um, of being populist without being popular, which is, a, which is a, <laughs> on, on the whole a bit of an error. Um, and not exactly um, strong men involved either. Um, but but, I, but I, I do think that 
um, uh, things have gone badly wrong um, in the 2000s. Uh, first of all, as I said, because of bad leadership. Um, I think we've been very bad at reinvigorating the international institutions um, which uh, helped to create such an extraordinary world for 40 years, 50 years um, after um, Stefan Zweig had killed himself because he couldn't believe the world could get, any, could get better after the 1940s. Um, I think we've um, seen a combination of, of economic failure, of increasing identity politics, partly because of the internet, though not entirely. Um, people um, who uh, talk to other people living in, this, in similar silos and think their um, um, prejudices are, um, uh, are acceptable because they're shared by others. Um, and I think that most of the leading populist, populist bosses that, that one can talk about are there also because of some particular sp specific issues in their own countries and their own political systems. Um, as you said just now, people were, as Gideon said, people were surprised when um, Xi Jinping turned out to be unlike his father. And it is quite surprising because, I, as I recall, um, his father was so badly treated um, that Xi Jinping's sister committed suicide, right? I'm looking at my guide on these things, Ron Amisha, who's in the second row. Um, so it was amazing that Xi Jinping turned out to be somebody who wanted to go back to Mao, whether it was in terms of personality cult or in terms of not just having the party dominating the country, but himself dominating the party. And whether that can last, I don't know. But I think, I think Xi Jinping um, is a case of, of a particular surprising um, change in the, the person who would, people had assumed would be like his dad, who was a reformist and a great friend of Deng Xiaoping, um, indeed a protege of Deng Xiaoping. Um, and I think you can think of similar um, stories in, in relation to others. I think just on one um, personal reflection, I think um, uh, my diary said so at the time. Uh, Vladimir Putin I saw first the first time in 1999 when he was acting prime minister and I thought he was the nastiest person I'd ever met. Um, we were, I'd just become a European commissioner and there was an EU uh, Russia summit which Yeltsin was of course supposed to come to and at the last moment um, he was taken ill. It's called having a hangover. <laughs> and he sent along instead the then acting Prime Minister, Vladimir Putin. And while we were waiting for him to come, there was a, a message on the tapes saying that there'd been explosions in Grozny. Um, so when he arrived, we said, could he explain something about these, these explosions to us? So he said, oh, he hadn't heard about that. He said, but he'd, he'd find out by lunchtime. So we came back to the subject at lunchtime. And he said, oh, it was, it was, it was what you call an own goal, he said. It was Chechen um, uh, rebels um, who'd been organizing an arms, arms bazaars in Grozny and there'd been some explosions. 
By that stage, the tapes were all making it clear that Grozny had been attacked by Russian helicopter gun gunships. And the point of the story and of dealing with him, I think which most people have found, is he not only lied to us, but he lied to us knowing that we would know he was lying to us. And that put him, I think, in a rather different category. And I do think that with both, in both the cases of Russia and, and China, we were in a state of considerable personal delusion, self-delusion about what was happening. Um, I, I reread the other day a <coughs> wonderful document, The Long Te Telegram by George Kennan. And George Kennan has a sentence in it <coughs> in which he says about the Russians, we have to understand that their view and ours about practicalities um, are, inc are incompatible. <coughs> and it's true. It's true about Russia, it's true about China today. And we kid ourselves, Mr. Blair, I remember saying, when China joined the WTO, their route to democracy is now unstoppable. <coughs> Something happened along the road. Gideon, um, we used to say that there wasn't a core ideology to post-Cold War authoritarianisms, that they were often incoherent, they were intellectually poor, there wasn't much to it. Um, but you, you, in, your, in your book, you do mention that there are themes that, you know, evolved over the years. I'm specifically thinking of themes that seem to resonate with foreign audiences, the anti-woke theme, the anti-LGBT theme, uh, specifically in the context of the Ukrainian war, a certain uh, anti-imperialist, anti-Western hegemony. These are very different points that appeal either to very conservative audiences or to leftist audiences. Uh, but there does seem to be a, a sort of an ideological core here. What would you say, if, if there is such a thing as an ideological core to contemporary authoritarianism, what would it, what would that be? Well, I think the anti-woke stuff is relatively recent, and mm -hmm. it's interesting to kind of figure out how opportunistic it is mm -hmm. and how deeply felt. But I would say, going back a bit, that the core thing is uh, nationalism. Uh, it's a kind of nostalgic nationalism, that, so that when Trump says, you know, make America great again. Uh, in different ways, all of these leaders are saying something similar. I mean, Putin is trying to make Russia great again. Xi actually speaks about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. Erdogan has this vision of, you know, Ottoman Turkey before Ataturk. Um, and uh, Modi, I mean, this nostalgia goes back 800 years, I think, you know, not just before the British, but before the, the Mughal Empire. So, um, but they all have this idea that the country, you know, was great, should be great again, and some combination of sort of internal and external enemies are, um, uh, have, have done it down and need to be overcome. And oddly enough, nationalism has a sort of cross-border appeal, which sounds a bit paradoxical, but I think, mm. you know, in an era of big global institutions such as the EU, uh, there are there, there is an audience to say there's a guy out there who really sticks up for his nation. You know, he's yeah. he's not a globalist. He's not embraced. Then that was, I think, part of Putin's appeal before all of this happened. And I don't think one should forget that Putin had a considerable international fan club before most of which he's lost by by now. I mean, just two days before the invasion, Trump calls him a genius. 
uh, Nigel Farage in an interview with GQ, I think, asked to name his political, what politician he most admired, said Putin. Is he, sorry, but is he losing that fan club because they now see him as a loser? Yeah, and I think at a certain point, you know, if you bomb Mariupol flat, it becomes harder to say you admire him. Um, though, you know, I wouldn't say it's inconceivable that he might make a sort of comeback you know, among, even amongst Western opinion in a couple of years, depending on, on how things work out. But then I think the anti-woke thing, which you mentioned, it is worth discussing because certainly the last time I was in Moscow, and uh, sadly I'm temporarily banned uh, for now, but uh, it was interesting seeing this guy, Konstantin Malafeyev, who's a big fund. I mean, it's an interestingly paradoxical figure. He speaks excellent English, investment, investment banker, billionaire, um, but a crazed nationalist. Um, but he was particularly... I, th I think genuinely enraged by what he regarded as wokeism. And I said to him, you know, he kept going about globalism. And I said, you know, what is globalism? He said, it means no borders between countries and no distinction between men and women. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, you can laugh about him. He was laughable, but he was actually an organizer. He was, he was the guy who was fixing up to see Marine Le Pen and Sal bringing Salvini to Moscow because he had the money and the international connections. And I think that a lot of that stuff, particularly about uh, trans rights and all of that, played very well in the West. You know, it plays well on, tuck, on Tucker Carlson. You can see it in some of the rhetoric of Giorgio Maloney and all of that stuff. So again, Putin was able to play, and I think he probably meant, certainly Malafeyev meant it, and I'm sure Putin did. He was able to say, look, the West's gone mad, you know, uh, and we, we represent traditional values. And there was a constituency in the West who would say, yeah, we have gone mad, or rather the people in power have, and this guy knows what he's talking about. So that, I think it became latterly quite important. Mm. Margaret. I think it's a good segue into some of uh, Gideon's uh, points about history to the question I had in mind for you, which is, uh, why do populist movements and authoritarian regimes use history so consistently uh, as a, both a justification and as a mobilizing force. This is something that seems to be central to otherwise disparate projects. I've, I've been thinking about it, and I think it's partly that what else do they have? Um, some can appeal to religion, but I think that's in most countries no longer. And Putin has tried to appeal to Russian orthodoxy, but I think that comes late in the day in what he's done. And, and appealing to history um, as other sources of authority seem to be less important becomes, I think, a very powerful mobilizing force. And, and, you know, how often we hear it in the West too, history will judge, as if history is this sort of impersonal panel sitting there like the four of us saying you're good and you're bad. I mean, it's a complete misunderstanding of what history is and, and what historians do. But it is nevertheless very powerful. And I think, I think, and I was thinking of what Gideon was saying, I think some of it also comes out of fear that we, we've lost something. Um, and I, it's partly, I think, tied up with globalization, which, which you also mentioned, that um, you know, we're being swamped. I mean, I think if you, if you look at Orban's Hungary, even Krastev has written very interestingly about this, mm. that what Hungary is really worried about, what the right in Hungary is worried about, is, is losing Hungarians. The young are leaving. The population is shrinking. You know, they're, they're trying now to encourage more Hungarian women to have children, and they're trying to... But it's, it comes out of fear as well, I think. But if you can say we were great in the past, you know, Russia, I mean, I've, I've, you, you may have seen it. There's a fantastic series I saw it on, on BBC iPlayer called Russia, the Trauma Years, which I've, I've, I've been watching. 
And they went through such an awful period. Money was worthless, people were selling things on the streets, factories weren't able to run, there was corruption everywhere. And I think in those circumstances, someone says, look, it's all right, it was okay before, we were great in the past, we, we just need to recover that. It's, it's sort of a, a very important sense that, you know, we may be in a mess now, but we're not doomed to be in a mess. And it also, I think, can be a sort of light to the future that we have this vision, um, you know, that here is this vision which we draw from the past, but we're going to have it again. You know, it's, it's part of us. And I think that is really important. And, and the other thing about nationalism, which, which you so rightly said, I think, Gideon, is it needs enemies. Mm. You know, it needs the enemies within, um, it needs the enemies without. And, and I think somewhere in there, again, the, the sort of emphasis on, on the decadence of society, the, the emphasis on, you know, men getting married to each other. You know, these are, this is sort of rhetoric that Putin uses. And I think there's, there's a fear of, of sort of losing what makes you a powerful society. And, and it gets all muddled up, I think, with gender roles and, and ideas about gender. <laughs> also the assumption, of course, that democracies are decadent. I think one of Putin's yeah. big mistakes was to think the West, because men could marry each other and women could marry each other, wasn't going to support Ukraine. I mean, which is a very odd bit of logic, yeah. but I think was very much there in his thinking that the West was decadent and finished. Um, the gender aspect is very important, and we'll come back to yeah. that in a second. Um, I have a question, uh, Lord Patton, about this assumption that uh, populism is ne necessarily anti-democratic and authoritarian. Um, and of course, far from me to... I, it's not that I want you to wade into British politics in this regard, but you haven't uh, held back in, in the past in this regard, especially in regard to Boris Johnson. Do you see the mobilization of... Uh, populist uh, themes in British politics as ever a risk to British democracy or do you think this was just a bit of a carnival uh, that never really jeopardized um, uh, you know the key institutions in the country this is going back to the initial question to Gideon whether authoritarianism abroad and populism at home can really be pulled together as part of the same conversation I think it's it is a bit of a threat because populism and nationalism, um, and it's why narrative is so important to them rather than rational argument. Um, they, they, they aren't very good at making an intellectual case. And the problem with, with liberal democracy, which is, I suppose, their foe, um, is that um, it does involve both in stating a case and in establishing institutions, checks and balances. It's not surprising that um, populists don't like checks and balances. It's not surprising that the, a lot of the right wing of the Conservative Party, the party of Edmund Burke, let it be remembered, um, find things like um, judicial review um, an anathema. So, uh, and as far as the reliance on history is concerned, it's normally pretty bloody bad history, which it's, it's sort of make, it's, it's, um, it's, it's make it up as you go along history. Um, so, um, uh, and one of the great pleasures in life is to seeing people trying to shred it. But we, we shouldn't forget that one of the most intelligent of recent right-wing politicians um, made a great splash during the Brexit campaign by making this case against um, against uh, intellectual argument, mm. and if you remember saying that um, we'd had enough of experts, mm. yeah. didn't you? Know, didn't want experts. You don't need experts. You 
um, you find a, a thesaurus for um, populist um, knee jerks, and, and you know that'll that'll see you through. I must say, I, I kind of wrestled briefly with whether to include Boris Johnson in the book, and I did partly for narrative reasons because I think that 2016 was well was the year, but not only of Trump but of Brexit, and that the two movements recognised something in each other. In fact, I remember. One of the, talking to Steve Bannon actually for the book, and he said to me, "The moment I knew Trump would win was when Britain voted for Brexit because they were the same coalition of people." Uh, but also, I think that Boris Johnson did flirt with Trumpian themes. There was uh, when he resigned as Foreign Secretary, he said, "You know, we're being too gentle with the EU. We should treat them the way Trump treats the world," which was again this mistake that I think you saw Liz Truss repeat, believing that Britain has the same kind of power of the United States, apart from it, the morality of it. Um, and then again, you know, he begins to talk about the deep state, frustrating Brexit. And does uh, In fact, shortly before he's forced out of office, he's, he's muttering about the deep state. So a lot of these themes are there, but because it's in this sort of jovial, very British style, I think people, it was easy to dismiss it as a, you know, a bit of a joke. But, but I, think, uh, I think our checks and balances work relatively well. Uh, compared to others, but, yeah. yeah. Do you think, Gideon, this is the source of his alleged popularity in, in some la traditional Labour constituencies? Well, you're the politician. I think you'd, you'd have a better sense than me, but uh, I, I think that... Yeah, but I'm the politician who wouldn't vote for him. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, th I think that uh, he was a sort of make Britain great again, you know, just as Trump was make America great again, and I think that that theme resonated in, uh, and I, uh, you know, in, in some constituencies. And although, you know, one's wary of sounding kind of snobbish, particularly speaking from a state in Oxford. But I mean, there was a correlation, certainly with both Trump and the Brexit voters. Uh, lack of uh, a degree was a very strong indication of who they would vote for. Uh, and Trump was was not. A, he actually said at one point, "We love the poorly educated." Um, also, if I could just yes, of course. That there's a sense that both Trump and, and Boris Johnson are authentic. Mm. They're not. I mean, no. they're great big liars, but um, there is a sense they tell it like it is. Mm. I mean, I've so often seen people being interviewed at a Trump rally or a, a Boris Johnson rally. You know, he tells it like it is. He doesn't mess about. He doesn't pretend to be anything he isn't. Mm. And I don't quite know how that fits in, but this sense that they're somehow real people. I think it's the taboo smashing. is very yeah. So that particularly with Trump, you know, the number of times that People like me would say, "Oh, look, he's finished. You know, yeah. he's, he's said this terrible thing." Uh, but in fact, actually, that built up the image of authenticity because people liked the fact that he would say these things that they knew they would be punished for saying, mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. So, can, can I ask you both something, which is, which is about nationalism and patriotism in this country? I was very struck at the time of um, Queen Elizabeth's death at a sort of sense of gentle, decent, decent, rather respectful mm. um, patriotism and nationalism, which you would think um, some politicians could actually tap into because it was hugely powerful. And if, if um, uh, rather elderly members of a once German family can do it in Britain, why, why can't our politicians? Oh. Yeah. Well, George Orwell put it very well, didn't he? He said, there's patriotism where it's my country, but I can still criticize it. It's not perfect. I know, you know it's not great. But nationalism, it's all or nothing, isn't it? Yeah. If you're a nationalist, you, you have to defend your country. You, you see it as being beyond criticism. 
Kirim, let me just say that I asked the question, but just to remove any doubt, uh, Boris Johnson is entirely in good company in this book. He very much belongs in, in this rose gallery, uh, and there's no doubt about it by the, end, by the end of the book. Let me ask you a question about the use of, uh, by strongmen of propaganda, of social media, um, their sophisticated deployment of those tools yeah. has been amply noted. You've, you've written about this. Something that is perhaps less noted is that they often believe in their own lies and that there's an informational gap. They're, they're, they are, as rulers, being given bad information about what is happening in their own societies, and they often get, get things wrong. And I think Putin underestimating yeah. the Western pushback in Ukraine was, was a, a good example of that. My question to you is, how do you prevent miscalculations on the part of strongmen who don't tend to receive accurate information? Poor, difficult. I mean, I, I mean, I think that my guess is that the longer they're in office, the more likely they are to fall prey to those kinds of miscalculations because uh, they become, well, I think actually it was David Cameron who said that, you know, all leaders eventually go mad in office and, and particularly if you're in an authoritarian system, somebody said to me about uh, Putin, you know, he, and he hasn't had to open a door for 20 years, you know, no wonder he's gone crazy. Um, uh, I, I think, yeah. And, and also you become increasing, obviously to stay in power that long, you have to institute something like a reign of terror. You know, she has had, I don't know how many, it was over a million people arrested in, in China as part of the anti-corruption mm -hmm. thing. Pe people come to sticky ends quite, regularly and so people are wary around you they don't want to contradict you you built up a cult of personality so you become more and more detached from reality and i think associated that with that is paranoia actually very very often and one of the re so one reason you may go wrong is that people won't tell you the truth the other is that you become detached from reality you don't really have a sense of what your own country's like anymore but also you have a vague sense of threat and therefore, I mean, I used to think that conspiracy theorists would generally come from the ranks of the powerless, but actually a lot of these leaders are conspiracy theorists. I mean, Erdogan is a classic example, I think really does believe that, uh, you know, George Soros is plotting against him in league with the interest rate lobby and the CIA and all of that. And, and Putin similarly, I think, does, is it one of the reasons he may have underestimated Ukraine is I think he didn't believe for a moment that the uprisings of the Maidan were spontaneous democratic movements. He thought that they were all a kind of CIA plot. There was no, there was nothing real underneath it. Um, and that conspiracy theorizing and, and paranoia, I think, also leads you to misjudgment. How you stop that is a harder question, which you'll notice I haven't answered. Yeah. No, I often say to my students, if you're thinking of as a career as a dictator, think twice because you will go crazy. Um, there's, a, there's a story, I, I agree with you completely, I mean, there's a story of Stalin in 1952 and Khrushchev and I think it was Malenkov went out to see him at his dacha and Stalin was sort of talking to himself and he said, I'm finished, I'm finished. He said, I don't trust any of them. He, and then he stopped and he said, I don't even trust myself. <laughs> and I think that does say something. You can't trust anyone and you become convinced that you're right. Um, and you, you have to keep going. I mean, I think this is sometimes, you know, why dictators blunder into wars because they, they need enemies. Um, they need to continue to mobilize people. They worry that people, Stalin worried a lot that the Russians were, were sort of backsliding and, and weren't. And, you know, if you look at the, the role of, I mean, 
you know, Churchill was right. I mean, democracies are a muddle, but they tend not to make as bad mistakes as authoritarian regimes. And you look at, you know, Hitler became convinced that he could outthink his generals. Um, Stalin, the same. Um, Mao created disasters for China because he thought he knew better. I mean, I think they end up making the most terrible mess and their people pay and the re their neighbors pay the most terrible price. Isn't that terribly important? Because um, um, there's a great man view of history, um, but there's surely also a great shit view of history. And people, <laughs> great shits get to the top because they're great shits. Mm. That's, that's, yeah. that's how they get there because they do bump people off or lie more than anybody mm. else um, or abuse power more mm. than anybody else would. Yeah, and they suspect everyone else is like them. Yes, that's why they bump them off. Yeah. I should at this stage reassure our audience that, Margaret, only very few members of our student body actually consider to build careers as dictators. Yes. It has happened. I was going to say, <laughs> yes. so if they're contemplating rare. becoming a dictator, they may already be crazy. Yes. There's <laughs> <laughs> not a course in it yet. <laughs> Uh, Laura Patton, I have a question for you about specifically, it, it, it could be, be answered in regard to Hong Kong, but, but more generally. Um, uh, a few years ago, you expressed some misgivings about um, just Western governments, not just particularly the UK government, just European governments also, uh, being uh, very, very careful about dealing with China just as the first demonstrations were starting in Hong Kong. More recently, you said that uh, you were actually uh, uh, positively impressed by the way uh, several governments have criticized China in this regard. My question to you is about business reactions in the West to authoritarian regimes uh, like the Chinese regime. Uh, in, in Hong Kong, I'm thinking of HSBC, I'm thinking of Jardine Matheson, a lot of companies that, you know, to, to use the expression, the role of euphemism. honor continue. Exactly. But more generally, uh, this this reaction to authoritarianism when it comes to the private sector seems to be lacking. And in fact, a lot of our major companies from the West have very hassle-free relationships with, with regimes uh, across the world. Well, my, my own experience was that um, there was very little relationship between um, people's assumptions about how they had to do trade with China, doubtless Russia as well, and what actually happened. And I don't, I've always taken the view that by and large, um, the Chinese do business on much the same basis as everybody else. They try to buy what they want at the best possible price. Um, and uh, if they can do that more easily, because they're people, because the people they're dealing with believe the narrative that in order to get them to purchase from them, they have to kowtow and they have to uh, uh, follow their, the Chinese narrative, then you can't blame them for playing the trick. But by and large, um, I mean, a, a, a figures that used to impress me were the difference between our export performance before I became the triple violator in Hong Kong. And while I, and while I was the triple violator in Hong Kong, um, nothing to do with me, but we had the fastest growth in export, exports in the OECD countries in the period while I was governor, when things weren't exactly going hunky-dory in our political relationship with the Chinese. So I thought, always thought there was um, a lot of nonsense um, talk, talked about that. But I, I do think there's, there's one important thing that um, tends to make life easier if you're a, a mother nasty 
power throwing your weight around. Um, and that is the, um, the assumption in too many liberal democracies that foreign policy is about being nice to foreigners. Um, I had a wonderful, impossible friend called Jonathan Mursky. Jonathan Mursky was, um, uh, started off as a Maoist academic in America during the Vietnam years. Um, the more time he spent in China subsequently, the more critical he became of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think took the same sort of view that Frank Dukota takes these days. You can't actually expect the Chinese Communist Party to seriously reform anything, it won't. But Jonathan, some of you, you might have known him, Jonathan stormed out of more dinner parties and parties than any other human being I've ever known. <laughs> he was whatever is the word beyond feisty. <laughs> But the reasons why he stormed out of dinner parties were normally uh, rather admirable. Um, he was covering Tiananmen uh, at the, for the Observer in 89. And he's surrounded by a group of kids, a group of students. And they start hearing pop, pop, pop. And one of these students pulls on his jacket and says, don't worry, Grandpa, he says. Um, they're only using plastic baton rounds. At which point this kid literally um, fell covered in blood into Jonathan's arms, dead. And Mursky always took it as a reason for saying as loudly as you could when you thought things were happening that were wicked and calling out things that were wicked and wrong. And it's a, it's a position which has had increasing um, um, sway with me as I've got as I've got older and allegedly more moderate and soppy. Um, I think when people do things that are wrong, we should say so, whether it's China or Saudi Arabia or whatever. And I don't think you do yourself many favors if you don't take a strong line on real abuse in human rights. And when the Chinese, I mean, the Chinese get away. I mean, the the the, the most stupid advice I had was from a very clever guy um, who was uh, had been Britain's ambassador in Beijing who said um, about the Chinese um, they may he said be thuggish dictators but they're men of their word <laughs> well part of that was clearly true but we were always reluctant to say when they weren't being men of their word we were always reluctant to call them out and if you don't call people out when they break the WTO agreement or break what they've said they would do um, with the WHO, with the international health regulations or whatever. If you never call them out, they go on behaving badly. And in the medium and long term, I don't think you do yourself any damage. Um, uh, you can be a bit absurd about it sometimes. We've had one or two foreign secretaries recently who, who have been. But, but um, I, think, I think by and large, when people behave badly, you should say so. Thank you. Um, just a quick final round of questions before we open the floor to our audience. Uh, Gideon, uh, authoritarians and populists and their, their reputation for competence, mm. is that in tatters today? It's looking a lot worse than it did, say, 10 months ago. Uh, no, it's interesting. I changed, I, I finished this book in December and ended on a sort of rather vague, hopeful note that this is a kind of flawed model of government. Uh, and eventually it will collapse. But I didn't think that they would 
I mean, I don't know actually whether Russia under Putin or Xi under China will collapse, but they've certainly um, both their reputations are a lot worse now than they were even at the beginning of the year, Putin for obvious reasons. But I think what's happening in China this week is really, really fascinating. Um, you're, you've now got the biggest demonstrations you've had, I think, since Tiananmen, uh, certainly nationwide around a single issue. China's has sort of little upsurges of protest about particular issues, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, I, I'd love to believe that, you know, this is the beginning of the end for Xi, but, um, you know, we've seen in, in Russia, Belarus, Iran, that, and Hong Kong, indeed, that d- determined authoritarian leaders can can uh, often fight their way through this stuff. But nonetheless, uh, whether or not he succeeds in staying in power, I think that the claim that uh, Xi and his supporters in the West were making really until quite recently, that, that actually and specifically China's handling of COVID proved the superiority of the Chinese system. Uh, is looking much weaker. I mean, one has to be fair and say it is true they've had much lower rates of death, but uh, but they seem to be now trapped in these lockdowns. Um, and partly for some of the reasons that I was discussing, particularly nationalism. I mean, it's it's very strange that they've just been so unwilling to import Western vaccines, uh, and I think they're now paying the price for that. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting to see both Xi and Putin who incidentally start the year in a kind of embrace, ideological embrace on February the 4th when they sign this joint document, which is, makes for interesting reading, partly because it's got this sort of common narrative about the West trying to undermine them. And, and is that so a lot about friendship without limits? Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the friendship without limits. And I think they must, well, she's probably regretting that now. Um, and, but he himself uh, kind of is in trouble, I think. Mm. Margaret. Uh, has the strongman dynamic peaked, you think? It, uh, it's too soon to say, and it will depend on what happens in different countries. Um, but I think there's less enthusiasm, both for populist movements and for strong leaders, certainly in, in, in Western countries. I mean, in Italy, um, you know, the, the populist movements were very strong, and then they actually got into office. And I remember the case of the mayor of Rome, who was a populist, and people noticed the garbage wasn't being collected because she didn't know how to deal with that. And, and this, you know, the pop, part of the populist and authoritarian argument is we both speak for the people, we will sort things out, we're going to deliver efficient government to you, and they generally don't. Lord Patton, uh, some time ago you said that, I quote, Leninism with capitalist characteristics is not a long runner. Do you still feel that way? Yeah, because um, I still believe that um, uh, all dictatorships end badly and do end. And when they end, we're all fantastically good at predicting after the event that they were going to (laughs) and saying that it was going to be, um, it would all happen very quickly, which of course it does when they they end. Um, But I don't don't think, I'm, I'm really impressed by I mentioned earlier Frank DeCotta, who wrote three uh, extraordinary books about China before, uh, under Mao. And he's written, just written another book about China after Mao. And it is, it is fundamental to his argument that, that Leninist capitalism, Leninism, Leninism, Maoism, cannot, isn't capable of reforming a system and making it work uh, really well. And I'm just wondering when we're going to start um, uh, with clever people 
um, writing books saying um, that um, uh, China would have done much better without the Communist Party or Russia without Putin. I think we're now in a, in a funny way in a more dangerous phase um, than we were. I think post-peak Putin is pretty dangerous when you look at how we end in Ukraine. And I think post-peak China is going to be very difficult to deal with without an explosion of grievance-soaked nationalism um, in Taiwan and elsewhere. So uh, I think it's, um, it's, it's hold your hats for a bit. Thank you. I suggest we open the floor to our audience. We have about 200 people here, and I think about 300 online, or 400 in fact. So can you please introduce yourselves um, and keep the question brief, preferably questions rather than comments, and just keep it brief so that we can have as many of you uh, participating. There's a question over there. And uh, we'll two questions there. And we'll pull about four or five questions before coming to the audience, to the, to the panelists. And please feel free if some of these questions, you might just allude to them very briefly. Yeah. Thanks for those presentations. I wanted to ask if you could sort of... Sorry, Netta Crawford. Nita Crawford. Okay. Sorry. Um, obviously new here. So I wanted to ask if you could, could say something about the relationship between democratic erosion in these populist countries before the rise of the populist leader. And in particular, I'm thinking about, you know, theories of democratic erosion look at certain indicators, but they rarely mention war or a cold war or ongoing competitions, uh, regional or internal. So do you have any thoughts about democratic erosion in situations such as, you know, the United States after 20 years of war? Um, I could go on. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, Petra? Petra Schleiter. Um, this was a fantastically interesting panel. And the question I have is really about the link between the authoritarian strongmen that we discussed and democratic backsliding. And one thing that is fascinating about the authoritarians that are running these electoral authoritarian regimes is that they've developed a toolkit for doing that. They've developed ways of essentially short-circuiting the elections, of short-circuiting checks and balances, of controlling media, of politicizing rights that really work. And I wonder whether you see a process whereby Democrats or not Democrats, sorry, populists in democratic regimes who are kind of would-be authoritarians are learning from those autocrats. Uh, there's one in the back over there. Leszek Blavatinsko government. Thank you so much for a very informed discussion. Uh, Can you speak up, please? Yes, Blavatinsko uh, government. My question is with regards to the democracy crisis. Don't you think that perhaps it's not the crisis, it's a new phase with uh, kind of like mass democracy, what Ortega Gasset calls uh, democracy of the masses, without the elites control that we had before, the gatekeepers uh, within the parties, the role of the media, we simply have to expect more populism. And basically, coming back to normal is impossible. So your thoughts on that. Thank you. 
Thank you. These are very rich questions. So instead of picking up the five, I'll just pick up these three and you can address them and then we'll go back to the audience. Perhaps starting with Gideon. Yeah, I mean, briefly, I, I, I do, I've only just begun to think about the, the, the role of the war, 20 years of war before Trump. But I think I'm sure you're on, to, I'm sure that's, that's, that has to be part of it. Uh, particularly because you see this detachment between the coasts, which are still voting for conventional candidates and the, the heartland where, which, where, where more people would have been you know, sent to the front, uh, which, which was more prone to vote for, for, for Trump. And perhaps the number of people who were, or families who were affected by the war, lost people, or, uh, very high rates of suicide incidentally amongst troops returning from Afghanistan. Um, must have contributed, I think, along with the, the other often more commented on things like deindustrialization, to this sense that the people running our country have messed things up, you know, and that, that we are suffering from this, and that therefore the appeal of, a, of, a, of an anti-system candidate who's, uh, would be stronger for that. I mean, it's hard to pin down. I'm, I'm probably a political scientist out there who would know how to do it, but for me, I, th I think that was probably part of it. Um, the, sorry, what was, what was the second question? It was a good question. Petrus, I about the connection with democratic backsliding. Yeah, I mean, just, to, just as you were talking, a thing that occurred to me, I, I certainly think that these leaders learn from each other. And um, certainly, so Trump's language is picked up and then echoed by all the stuff about fake news. Bolsonaro then picks up, Netanyahu picks up. They, they, they have, they have a, develop a vocabulary and and ways of um, behaving. And actually, um, Kim Shetley at Princeton is very interesting about how um, th there's a strange cult of Viktor Orban in the United States. And you know, the way that he is, you know, I think Tucker Carlson moved his whole show to Budapest for a week because Orban is seen as this model. Um, and part of it's this cultural conservatism we're talking about. But she argued that actually the Republicans are very interested in the way in which Orban consolidated power and manages to retain the facade of a democracy mm. while actually taking control of the courts, the media, et cetera, gerrymandering. Um, and so, yeah, I think that uh, there's definitely a, a lot of um, mutual learning out there. Mm -hmm. Margaret? I think just to go back to the question about um, war and democracy, I think, again, it depends very much on the war. Um, you know, Britain, in, in war, the argument can always be made that we have to give up certain freedoms because we have to fight the war, we have to concentrate, we can't afford. But, and in Britain, um, during the Second World War, um, the government stayed in office much longer, the elections were postponed, but Britain returned to full democracy after the war, which I think indicates the strength of democratic institutions and an understanding. But where institutions are under question, I think wars can often have the effect of, particularly if they're unsuccessful wars, because then you can say the institutions clearly aren't working, democracy isn't working, look, look at the mess it's got us into. Um, and I think on the use of institutions, I think you often see this with, with populist authoritarian movements, they will use the institutions to get into power, and then they will destroy those institutions. You know, they'll use votes, they'll use courts, and then they will, once they've got into power, um, dispense with them, or, or they will try and change them, as there are, you know, a number of Republicans have been doing it at the state level and the national level in the United States, to not just gerrymander, but to try and suppress votes, to try and use the institutions, which they will then, I, I suspect, abandon if they can. Yes, Erdogan uh, had a great line about that. Yeah. It's a great but sinister line, which is he said, uh, 
democracy is a tram that you ride until you get to your destination. Well, that's very good. <laughs> that's very good. That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. I bet thing. Tucker Carlson yeah, knows yeah, that one. Yeah. Um, and just briefly on elites, it's a very interesting question and an unfashionable one. I mean, I'm, I don't mean this as a criticism, but it's one we're not talking about enough because elites have been gatekeepers. And one of the explanations I've seen for the dysfunctional institution that Congress has become in the United States, that the party system has broken down. You used to have these really tough old chairmen, the Lyndon Johnson, for example, who ran a tight ship. And if a young congressman stepped out of line, that was it. Um, you didn't get the assignments, you didn't get, and so that it was a type of gatekeeping which did actually acculturate people to the political system, and, and they had to wait, and they had to show themselves, and they had to prove themselves, and I think that has broken down. But you're a member of the elite, so you can yeah, tell us. Um, just, just a couple of points. Um, Mr. Orban was, of course, this university's contribution to the discussion, um, here on a scholarship provided by George Soros. Um, which he appears to have. Uh, Sorry, he didn't stay very long. Though. He didn't got Oxford. So you can't. Oxford he, can't he, take he, all he, the he went back to fighting communism. Yeah, in, exactly. in, in Hungary, but um, I've always thought that it was quite interesting that the that the um, conservative appointed head of the Office for Students, um, uh, who's, who gives us lectures on freedom of speech and uh, and uh, a balanced and tolerant discussion. Um, not very long ago was, was um, speaking in support of um, one of Mr. Orban's um, conferences along with some, oh, yeah. some uh, rather unattractive right-wingers. He didn't appear to know who any of them were. So I'll just say one thing about, um, about democracy. Um, Farid Zakaria wrote a very, very good book, I think about 20 years ago, on why democracy wasn't just about elections. Of course, it helps if there's a politician in a democracy, you accept that um, elections are determined when side, one side gets more votes than the other. I mean, that is a help <laughs> to the integrity of the democratic process. But Zachariah's point was that how important, I mean, you could, you were, could go, to, go to countries where you'd, they'd be making great effort to have an election and they'd have an election once. Um, but the things that matter in liberal democracies are due process, the rule of law, institutions, including dare I say, liberal universities, which should be pillars of, of a liberal democracy. And um, all those things, which are part of what Karl Popper would have, would have uh, described as an open society and did describe as an open society. So I think it's very important that we should recognize that, that the, there's a thicker tapestry when you come to talk about liberal democracies and simply voting. And, and one last point on this, I think it does help when people and successful leaders in liberal democracies appear to believe in them themselves and believe in the institutions um, which are part of them and which also in international circumstances um, work to strengthen the institutions which bring liberal democracies together. And one of the extraordinary things is that, that led by America, which has been disastrous in this, but all of us, we have paid very little attention to getting the right sort of people appointed to run UN organizations. Anne Applebaum has written extraordinarily well on this. And it's a real weakness. If you think that these organizations, whether it's the World Health Organization or the WTO or others, all of which bring together our view of the world, then you try to get good people to run them. Um, and don't allow um, uh, lickspittles from authoritarian regimes to, to do it. Um, apologies to the UN.
Thank you. We have uh, several questions. We have uh, one online question. Clara, would you like to read that? Um, Michael Whittington has asked, why does dictatorship automatically reflect malevolence rather than benevolence? Thank you. We have a, Ian Golden. Ian over there. Thanks very much. Ian Golden, good evening. Um, economics hasn't been mentioned yet, and the relationship between populism, authoritarian regimes, economic crises, and inequality. So I'd like to ask this uh, wonderful panel whether they think that President Trump would have been in the White House without the financial crisis, whether they think Brexit would have happened in Britain without the financial crisis, and obviously the Second World War without a financial crisis and the Great Depression, and how they see the relationship between growing inequality and the future of populism and authoritarianism. Good questions. So over here we have two questions, uh, Nick Westcott and Norlai. Thank you, Nick Westcott at SOAS. Um, a question particularly for Gideon about the role of the media and whether uh, aspiring strongmen populists are able to abuse the freedom of the media, which we saw both in uh, Trump's rise and in the Brexit debate, to treat truth and falsehood uh, impartially, uh, particularly kind of things like the pressure on the BBC uh, to do that. I wonder if you could comment on that and whether it's a weakness of democracy that you are so easily able, it seems, to manipulate it. So there are two, two more questions, one here and then another one here, and then we'll go back to them. Hi, Mariana Borges from the Department of Politics and Nuffield College. Um, so I wanted to go back to the allusion to the 30s, um, because in, in the 30s, we were not in a period of mass democracy as we are nowadays. So, and we also talked about how um, dictators go crazy, how they lose contact with reality, and how this is often one of the reasons why dictatorships fail. But looking at the democracies today, my concern is that, especially the populist democratic strongmen like Trump and Bolsonaro, uh, their movement is highly, is very massive, is popular, in a sense that they, they, it's not so dependent on the strongmen itself. So we have Ron DeSantis, Will he be very different as Trump was? For Bolsonaro, I have many other people that can replace him because these become, became a popular massive movement that I'm not sure that we can make these comparisons in the 30s. Uh, so, um, so what does that look like for our future with this, um, is like this majoritarian uh, democracy that kind of leads this popular movement? Thank you, excellent question. And over here, Adil Malik. Adil Malik, Oxford Department of International Development. Um, I would like to ask a question about economics as well. Um, in a sense, this the rise of nation, these nationalist populist leaders could also be attributable to the effort to re regain control of borders, not really in the context of, na uh, in the context of migration, but actually in the context of policies, economic policies, because we've seen uh, people like Danny Roderick, Raghuram Rajan, talking about the WTO, the World Bank, creating a set of rules and insisting developing countries on regulatory harmonization, which really reduces the scope for policy action. Um, so this might be connected with the larger struggle to regain economic sovereignty. Thank you, Adil. These are very rich and wide-ranging questions, so take your pick. I'll start with Margaret. Um, 
Leave the difficult well, ones aside. Yeah, I'm going to leave the difficult ones for the other two. Um, I think on, on the financial crisis, I think it, it did have an impact, but I think so did globalization. I mean, I think part of the appeal of populism was to the, the left behinds. Um, you know, the hollowing out of, of industri vast industrial areas of, of countries, the sense that jobs had moved offshore and there were no longer jobs that gave people dignity and the possibility of supporting families. Um, and I think that is, I mean, this is part of what Trump was talking about in Make America Great Again. He had no policies, I think, to do this, but it was a very, very powerful message. And I think the other one I will, because I'm the historian, I just will, just will comment on it. I'll leave the rest to, to, to my colleagues. Um, was the 1930s, there was quite a lot of democracy in the world. Um, you know, a lot of European countries are democratic, North America, Australia, and indeed a number of countries such as India were moving towards greater democracy. So I think we can look at that period. Um, and I think the same issues with the use of majorities to impose dictatorships, I think, were important. I think there is a difference too, which I think you, you, you perhaps were, were, were getting at, that there are authoritarian regimes which, like the regime in Pakistan, which, which where the army intervenes when it wants to. But the sort of regimes I think we've been focusing more on, the ones that seem to be focused around a single leader, the single wise leader. And this seems to be a very powerful mobilizing force. And yes, of course, these leaders, Bolsonaro, well, he, he luckily left office um, more or less gracefully, um, unlike further north. Um, but people like Xi Jinping, um, Putin himself, um, Orban develop a cult of the personality, um, you know, and they, they, they don't want anyone around them of equal status. And I think that that sort of father of the nation, and again, I think there is this interesting gender thing. I'm trying hard to think of women hmm. authoritarian, women populist leaders. Um, perhaps we need to get cracking on that. But, <laughs> Margaret, you, you actually alluded to that briefly during the, yeah. the discussion. Do you want to say a couple of words about that? There's a sort of macho politics. Yeah, it's the macho side, isn't it? And I don't quite, I mean, someone, I hope someone is going to write about this, and perhaps someone has, I just don't know it. But there is this stress on masculinity, you know, hyper-masculinity. No shirts. With no yeah. shirts. Putin riding, you know, on horseback with no shirt. Putin's going to feel distrust, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> she, yeah, she doesn't have... But Trump did the same thing, didn't he? You yeah, know, and Putin. Putin. Oh, no, but Modi as well. I think yeah. they have this whole thing about the size of Modi's chest. So that's yeah. 56 inches? Yeah. And, and the language often is. Yeah. The language it's great that you keep up with those stats. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, well, I, the media one was di directed at me. I actually thought you were, you were going to ask about social media, which I think is also part of the whole thing. But, but you're right. As, as there's, there's an interesting debate about um, how, how far the traditional media, the FT, for example, uh, should start saying more explicitly what Trump is saying is not just a claim or it's a lie, you know. And I must say, when I first started reading it, in fact, in my own paper, we said Trump lied. I actually flinched, you know, on our news pages. That's not sort of, you know, if you wanted to say that, you'd get an independent expert to say, you know, this doesn't appear to be true or whatever. So I, I think that there are, there are reasons why, you know, we want to defend our reputation for impartiality. We don't want to just preach to the converted. Uh, it's increasingly a difficult thing because I think people do read papers that they, you know, tr for tribal reasons partly. But, uh, but certainly uh, the, the younger 
younger, God, I really sound ancient, but the younger sort of generation of reporters, I think, do feel quite strongly that you should be much more explicit about saying Trump lied, etc. I'm not sure where I come out on that one, but it's a very live debate uh, in the papers. I think the American, the New York Times now routinely says, you know, in a lie, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I also think that um, although traditional media were helpful to these leaders, actually social media was really key. I think, And I, I, I don't think it can be entirely coincidental that this age of the strong man that I was writing about was also the age of the rise of social media. Um, and I think that it's, they're particularly helpful to them because they allow them to construct these alternative narratives in a very in a completely unchallenged environment, and uh, you know on Twitter you have followers after all, which is a very kind of authoritarian idea. And on Facebook people like a post; they don't say whether true or false. It's do you like this or don't you? It's a kind of appeal to the emotions. Um, and I, I guess successful politicians throughout the ages have often been particularly adept users of the media of their time. So FDR was great on radio, Kennedy was on brilliant on television, and Trump was the Twitter president. Uh, he, was, he sort of got how to use that medium. Uh, but, but others as well. I mean, Bolsonaro, I think, was prolific on social media. And Duterte of the, the Philippines was a, an early example, I think, which was social media scholars have looked at where Facebook was really, really important in allowing him to pump out false stories, which then went viral and completely bypassed uh, a lot of the kind of traditional gatekeepers in the media. Mm -hmm. Roy Patton? First of all, on, on the media, um, it was interesting that um, our great national broadcaster during the Brexit campaign was criticized on both sides, criticized by some for being ab absurdly um, in the hands of uh, um, people with townhouses in Islington. Um, and uh, 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 Boris like Boris Johnson. <laughs> and sort of um, uh, uh, walkish views on food. Um, and on the other hand, there were those like me who thought it was absolutely absurd that in order to show it wasn't biased, when Mark Carney was on, um, saying something about the economy, the BBC felt obliged to put Jacob Rees-Mogg on the other side. And this did seem to me to be taking um, balance um, uh, a, a stage, stage too far. Um, I used to kid myself that the reason why we'd never have a revolution or a dictator in this country was, was two reasons. First of all, because of the National Trust, and secondly, because we have a sense of humour. But perhaps others do as well, so I... I, I I offer that up as my own example of, of disgraceful um, nationalist uh, sentimentality. Um, I think we did mention, but perhaps not enough at the beginning, the um, relationship between economics and the arrival of populism and the arrival of populist governments. I would guess, I don't know the, the figures, that if you looked at the figures for um, what had happened to national, um, sorry, the uh, uh, domestic income in the constituencies which voted for Brexit and then became the red wall constituencies. If you looked at, at um, disposable income in those constituencies in the 10 years before the Brexit campaign and what was happening in the rest of the country, you'd find that those um, were the constituencies which had done, which had done worst. Uh, 
and were then assured that things would be terrific um, uh, after Brexit and are now discovering that unfortunately um, Singapore on Thames um, is, a, is a destination which we haven't quite caught yet. We put Caracas in on Thames, but not, not, not Singapore on Thames. Um, so I, I do think there is that clear relationship between, between uh, economic grievance, often justified economic grievance, um, and uh, the way people are likely to vote for simple populist solutions. Um, that must be true. And what, of course, um, those of us who believe in free trade and hate the idea of autarkic economic systems have to try to ensure is that the proceeds, the economic proceeds, are um, spread as evenly across the country as possible. And I'm not sure we've been very good at that in this country. And it's partly because of uh, the fundamental problem we have of understanding that you can't have um, European standards of, of public provision and American tax rates. And it seems to me so fundamental, but we haven't yet um, picked it up. Hence, one of the reasons for our the lamentable state of the British economy. Um, so economics and populism, but I hope that the that lamentable state doesn't doesn't produce um, um, the Farage dictatorship or whatever, whoever would um, get to the top. Probably not him. Kevin. Yeah, yeah just a kind of quick footnote to that. I was, I was quite interesting polling evidence from the US about the connection between economic dislocation and voting for Trump. And it's certainly the case that, as perhaps one might expect, people who'd suffered economic damage were more inclined to vote for him. But it was particularly people who attributed that economic damage to unfairness in the system or racial unfairness in the system. If they believed, if they responded yes to the question, you know, that, that uh, whites are discriminated against uh, and, at, and attached their own economic misfortune to that, then that was a very, very sure predictor of, of voting for Trump. Uh, so I think that if you're a populist, what you've got to do is not just identify the group that's been damaged economically, You've got to find a kind of a convincing grievance attached to that, and then you're really in business. Villains who've, who've robbed you, yeah. who've exported your jobs to China. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. go on. We have another round of questions. So one question online, please. Um, both Jed and Brian have asked about climate change. Is it a factor in authoritarianism or? Um, do you think that the climate emergency and its apocalyptic presence will throw up more strong men? Thank you. There's a question here. Hello, uh, my question is... Which Can you are introduce the... yourself, please? Okay. Uh, my name is Adriana, I'm from Brazil. And uh, <clears throat> I was wondering, which are uh, the roles of women in the age of the strong men? Thank you. I can see a hand here. Hi, my name is Ryan Hamilton. How do we, we talked a lot about strong men and populism rising in a variety of democracies. How do we explain the country where that hasn't happened to the same extent? How do we explain the countries where populism and strongmen have not risen to the same extent as the US or France or Italy? Hmm. Any more questions? There's a, Andrea? So strength is, uh, Andrea Ruggeri, DPR, strength is a relative concept. 
So you're a strong man if someone else is also weak or let you to be the strong man. So can we focus also on under what condition strong men win against those they should resist their goals? So how academics, newspapers, or politicians have failed in democratic system to prevent the rise of strong men and populists. Thank you. This is our last round of questions. So if you want to throw in, there's still space for one, one more. Please, Clara, there's someone online. Um, Jim Smith online has said, what's the best way to remove an authoritarian populist regime, assuming you live under one? Thank you. Again, these are very, very interesting questions, lots of different themes. Um, I'm going to start with Margaret, then Lord Hatton, and I'm going to end up with, with Gideon. Okay, well, um, because I'm a woman, I suppose I should say something about women in the age of the strong man. Um, I suppose my first advice would not try and be like them. And that's always been a temptation for women who want to achieve power, that they try and behave like men or what they think men should behave like. And I think that would be a mistake. But I don't hold out any faith that women are nicer and gentler and kinder than men. Um, I think given a chance, women are just as capable of being, well, I think of Mrs. Gandhi in India, Mrs. Bandranayaka, um, they are just as capable of um, you know, being authoritarian. It may simply be that we, at this moment, seem to have mainly men, but it doesn't mean that waiting in the wings somewhere isn't a very authoritarian woman. Um, the country, the condition under which strong men come to power, I think we've talked about the um, conditions of crisis, the perception of unfairness, the perception that voices are not being heard. Um, I mean, another side of the economic issue is, is growing inequality, the sense that there are these very rich people who are running things to suit themselves and they're fine and they're not paying taxes and the rest of us are suffering. I mean, I think that's important. I think what also matters is that you don't get the institutions for various reasons that should oppose this, that, that should stand up for the, for the democracy. I mean, in, just to use a historical example, I mean, when the Nazis were rising to power in Germany, too often the state bureaucracies, the military, the judiciary, who should have opposed them, let them get away with it. In fact, many of them sympathized with it. I and mean, the army was complicit, I think, with the rise of the Nazis and, and um, was not prepared to support um, the, the democratic government. And, and nor were the bureaucracy, you know, large numbers of bureaucrats felt that what they wanted was you know, something that was efficient. I mean, the, this, this great plea of efficiency, I think, is a very dangerous one. Um, I will leave it to, to my colleagues to talk about how you get rid of such regimes. But as, as Lord Patton said, it's usually very messy and very painful. Um, the collapse of such regimes usually doesn't go easily. Um, but that's no argument for saying that they must be maintained because the damage they do will go on increasing. Thank you. Lord Patton? I was musing while, while listening to those questions about gender and, and uh, either political strength or political success. Um, that apart from Madame, Madame Mao, no woman of any distinction has got to the top in China. I mean, there's no member, there's no member of the Standing Committee of the Politburo now. There was one education uh, member of the Politburo some time ago, but Madame Chen, <coughs> an older generation. Yes, an older, yeah, 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 on a different side. Um, uh, but I, I said that partly because the best public servant I've ever, ever worked with 
was a woman, was Anson Chan, who had all the um, toughness you would want of a, of a political leader, all the decisiveness, um, uh, was also capable of, of, of considerable charm um, in a sort of, um, uh, in a very tough way. And I could never understand why she didn't do even more in, in, in politics or international politics, an extraordinarily capable, capable person and a great dancer. Um, the, 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 uh, we were talk, there was a question at the back about climate change. Last year, um, Jonathan Sumption made a very, gave a very good lecture. It was part of a series um, organized by Noel Bigger, I think. Um, he gave a, a, an extraordinary lecture in which he talked about um, his nervousness uh, about international agreements on climate change leading to catastrophic circumstances in democracies. Because he's, he was saying that if you, if you have in a, in a democracy um, persuade people freely to make sacrifices and to make changes in their life in order to produce the results which will help to mitigate climate change, and then they're capable, and then they can open the paper and see that um, last month four new um, coal-powered power stations were opened in China or whatever. It's going to do terrible things to their belief in the, in the fairness and effectiveness of democracy in dealing with really huge issues. So I think there are all sorts of dangers ahead and, unless we can get people to agree that when they sign international agreements, they keep them. Yeah, well, I'll, a couple of questions. Uh, there was one that, that we haven't got around to yet about countries where it hasn't happened, which is quite an interesting one because I was actually in Australia last week, which may be why I'm looking a bit grey. Um, and I was asked this, you know, are we vulnerable to this? And had to try and, you know, and you could make a case why Australia has some of the factors that lead to this kind of leadership. They have uh, high levels of immigration. They have very sensitive issues around Aboriginal rights, which could, uh, you know, set the, you know, it could be seen as unpatriotic once you start rewriting the Australian story to take into account the, the, the origins of the country. They have Rupert Murdoch, good uh, indicator of danger. Um, but, uh, but I think that they've also had 30 years of uninterrupted economic growth because they're lucky enough to be uh, 25 million people living on a continent stuffed with mineral wealth, uh, which probably helps. So I think that kind of smooth, that not having the economic crisis that we've discussed this evening helps. Uh, it, it, if you have money to kind of smooth out different uh, interest group disputes, it helps. Uh, so, you know, I don't think they're invulnerable to it, but they're, but they're, they're in a better situation. Not, the other country that springs to mind is Germany, uh, which does have the AFD, but which hasn't really taken root. Which, and despite, you know, the, the, the refugee crisis, which a lot of people were worried would destabilize Germany seems to be okay. And I think there it's experience. You know, the Germans have, have seen this up close and they, they have been inoculated uh, against strongman rule. I, and I hope the inoculation lasts, but I mean, I think that they, they see, whereas I think that Britain and the United States were complacent about their own democracies. We thought it can never happen here. And that's, that's really quite dangerous. Um, so, and then, you know, how do you get rid of it? Well, I mean, 
you have to hope that, I think, first of all, that you're living in a democracy where you've got a much better chance. I mean, and, and so, you know, America's institutions just about held in, in the last presidential election, and uh, they did get rid of Trump, and hopefully he won't make a comeback. It's looking a bit more hopeful than it was a few weeks ago. Um, but I think if you're in a, in a system where democratic institutions are, are either don't exist or have been powerfully eroded, like Russia or Turkey, um, then then it's it's much more difficult, and you find yourself as the Chinese are now, taking to the streets and hoping that something cracks. Um, the Germans don't have cricket, which has perhaps also been useful in Australia. Um, what they do have, it seems to me, is something which we should should get much more praise than it is. Um, They've been extraordinarily honest about their own history. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Much, much more than, I mean, I, I very much like Japan as a country, but much more than the Japanese. When you, when you think of some of the films about the Stasi, about the last days of Hitler and so on, it's, it's been a cultural phenomenon as well as um, something they've been prepared to, as to say, and embrace um, uh, politically. So I, I think they've, they, they've shown, shown us all how to, uh, how to really behave about one's history. Thank you. This has been a, an excellent, excellent panel. Thank you very much. I would just like to end by uh, again conveying that much of the discussion took place around uh, Gideon's book, uh, which is, is again a, a major contribution to these debates. I would also like to thank uh, Charles Godfrey and the Martin School. The Martin School is a very privileged location in Oxford for us to have these uh, interesting in cross-cutting conversations. I'm very thankful for, for your support, Charles. And also Clara Boyer and Hannah Mitchell, the team that has run this event so efficiently uh, for us. But I'd like to end by us think, uh, our, thanking our panelists for such a great time.